Welcome to this week's Political Books Podcast with me, Ian Dale. Uh, with me, I have Andrew Marr. Now, Andrew, we, we've spoken many times, not least on your sofa, but also I've interviewed you a couple of times about books. But um, your latest book, at least I think it's the latest one, is a novel. It is, Head of State, yes. I've known paperback, yes. It is, isn't it? That's kind of why we wanted to talk to you. But um, having written mostly non-fiction before, um, what made you decide to plunge into the world of fiction? Well, the honest answer is that I got, I was given a story um, by somebody, Peter Chaddington, Lord Chaddington, who's a friend of David Cameron's, and who'd worked for John Major in the old days. And one day Major had come down uh, in Downing Street from, from upstairs in the flat, and he looked absolutely death white, sort of chalky, ma- waxy white. It's going to be chalky and waxy <laughs> at the same time, which of course you can't, but you know what I mean. And Peter thought to himself, my goodness, he's going to die. He looks like he's about to die. And then he thought, well, what would happen? They were in the middle of yet another European crisis, as the major mm. government always was. What would happen if the Prime Minister died in office? And he thought in those days, the first thing that would happen is that Michael Heseltine would barge his way into the He hasn't died, completely impossible, hasn't happened. And they would, they would try and cover up the death for a certain amount of time to get through whatever crisis they were going through. And then he asked himself, well, how long could you, in the modern world, cover up the death of the Prime Minister in Downing Street in a crisis? Wouldn't that be a good idea for a book? And he's not a writer, but we've got a friend, a mutual friend, uh, my agent, Ed Victor. Ed Victor put us in touch, and out of this, I, out of that, I kind of span a, a plot. Partly because I wanted to be able to talk about politics in ways that you can't in, in non-fiction. I mean, you can't really describe quite the atmosphere in Number 10 during a crisis, mm. uh, as you see it in, in, in non-fiction, but you can in a novel. And so that, that was the idea behind it. And did you enjoy the experience? I mean, is, is it a different <laughs> writing experience to writing uh, one of your more traditional books? It's much, much harder, or I find it much harder, because you have to create not only all the characters and then a believable, plausible plot, um, but in my case, the plot was very complicated, and I got into terrible trouble about the time. There were two, there's two different time sequences going on simultaneously in the novel, and at times it was like um, taking to piece the grandfather clock and putting it on the floor and thinking, my God, I've got to put this back together again. Lots mm. and lots of sprockets and wheels and springs lying all over the place. And I found it really, I did it just after my stroke, and I found it really, really hard to get my head around the plot. Uh, and a lot of novelists just sort of start writing and see where the plot takes them. Anne Widdicombe tends to, I mean, she kind yeah. of knows where she's going, yeah. but she doesn't have sort of a, a complicated plot. And she always says, one of the characters takes her by surprise. Did that happen to you? Yes, it certainly did. Um, I have a villain in this who's a kind of PR man. Nothing to do with Lord Chadwick and I hasten to add. We're, we remained on good terms and all that. But my villain, I thought, the kind of people who really emblemise our culture, our political culture, are the PR gurus who move seamlessly from Tony Blair to the Tory party and back again and all the rest. Of it. They're always where the power is. Their own views are very, very mobile. They have grand, grand house parties in the countryside where all the movers and shakers tend to be. And so I created this this noxious figure, uh, Alawar Haydn, he's called in the book, who is a kind of emblem of everything in my view How that's wrong. How did you come up with that name? Alawar, um, Hitler's father's name, oh. and Haydn, I wanted a middle European name that didn't have any kind of connotations, but would, would trip off an, an English tongue reasonably easily. Um, and characteristically, nobody quite knows where he comes from. Is he Greek? Is he Turkish? Is he Russian? Nobody quite knows. But he, he's from somewhere else, and he's com- a complete chameleon figure. And uh, he, I, I, I loved writing about him, because I, I made him nastier and nastier and nastier. And of course, he does very, very well by the end of the book. And you, you, you've embarked on a second one. I've, I've got a second one coming out um, in, the, in the early autumn, late summer, 
So you um, finished it? It's finished it, yes. It's called Children of the Master. And it's a satire about Blair and Blairism inside the Labour Party. So the first one's really about the Tory party and an in-out European referendum. The second one's about the Labour Party and the question of leadership. Both of those things being relatively current. Because it's quite interesting. In in the 80s and 90s, political fiction was quite a thriving genre. It isn't any longer. Why do you think that is? I think it's completely bewildering. I had a conversation with Ian McEwan no slouch as a novelist. And I said to him, why should you ever write about politics, Ian? Because you have all the drama, you have the extraordinary big characters, you have the pressure of events. It's a fascinating area. And he looked at me and he said, watch this space. So maybe there'll be an Ian McEwan about politics coming Well, he soon. did win the Political Fiction Prize at the Political Books, Award, Books Awards a couple of years ago, so he must have done something vaguely political. He, was that the one about climate change? He wrote a very uh, a sort of thriller about climate change, which is vaguely political, Cause, I cause, suppose. Because I remember we were thinking, how do we make sure that he actually comes to the event? Well, and, he, and he did come, and it, it, it was a really good I don't know what you think, Ian, but it seems to me that actually the great attraction of politics is that it's like good theatre. In, in theatre, what you have is time compressed and the pressure of events allows character to reveal itself much more directly and sharply and painfully than it would in ordinary, languorous, everyday life. And I think politics is a bit the same. You get big characters then put under extraordinary, intolerable pressure and you sit back and see what happens. The, the reviews for your book have, have not been universally uh, praiseworthy. I've had does some that, lovely that, reviews and some some of the worst reviews I think any novel has ever received well, in my life. That was kind of what I was alluding to. Yeah, does, well, I does that get to you? Because it would get. I know it, it would really, get to oh, me. No, it got to me enormously. People who say a they don't read the reviews, liar, and two I rise above the reviews, liar. You know, no, it certainly got to me. Um, I can even recall for you the headline on the Spectator review, which it really was did get to Andrew Marr thinks he's a novelist, full stop. <laughs> I don't, dot, dot, dot. Who wrote that? I can't remember. A, a, a woman reviewer whose name I can't remember. Um, probably That's probably sort of Freudian and stuff. Um, no, I mean, in the end, I, no, I was very hurt by some of the reviews because I thought it was a, a funny and readable book. Mm. It was, it's no great. I have no, pretensions, well, it I have no pretensions to be a literary novelist. Never have had. Um, but it was, I, I mean, it, you know, it passes, you, you can pass away three or four hours reading it with no see, harm I, done. I think um, that a lot of people who go into novel writing when, they've, when they're famous for something else, um, people review them rather than the books that they're writing. And if somebody doesn't like you as a TV or radio presenter, their, their thoughts are going to be guided by that, I think. I think there's a bit of that. I think there's a bit of who loves a clever dick. Yeah. Here's somebody who's on telly. He writes history books. He does this. He paints. He probably yeah. ballet dances. And now he <laughs> thinks he can write novels as well. Well, we're going to take him down a few pegs. <laughs> um, and indeed, one of the um, the publishers who I talked to being said, you're going to be absolutely slaughtered for this. Tall poppy syndrome. They'll mm. have your head off in a second. And she was quite right. But I comfort myself and say it's sold a lot of copies and had a very good reaction from readers. Yeah. And people keep coming up, to, coming up to me saying how much they've enjoyed it. So, I mean, there will be people who love it and there will be people who loathe it, and that's all I can say. Painting. Painting, yes. What do you get out of that? Because I've never quite got it. It's really difficult for a start. I mean, I use, I've painted all my life rather conventional landscapes with an easel in front of the landscape. But since my stroke, my left arm is completely, or pretty much completely useless. And that means you can't paint outside. Will that always be so? Um, I think, probably. I, I, I'm, working a lot, I'm working on it, I'm getting some movement, I'm getting something back, but mm. it's still pretty vestigial. Um, so um, when the wind comes along and blows your canvas over, you're completely stuffed. So I could not, I can't paint outside anymore. And so after a long time being depressed about that, I got myself a studio near where I live, and I paint inside, but that means I paint from inside my head as well. Mm. I don't have views in front of me. 
so I'm painting abstract pictures and it's incredibly difficult. How do you make something that holds together and holds your attention, looks, looks interesting, looks nice, is kind of clever in pure colour and shape on, on a flat surface without ever having done it before? It's the hardest thing I'm doing and it makes my brain go to places it doesn't normally go. When I'm do it's very relaxing because when I'm doing it, I'm only thinking about the curve of that line. Is that muddy blue quite right next to that dark green or should I lighten the green? What about a bit of pink in the top corner? How will that work? That kind of thing. Completely different way of thinking than the rest of us in and the way we spend in political life. How long do you spend doing it in one go? I can only manage about three hours at a time because my back starts to ache after a while and my, and my attention starts to lapse. So about three hours, but I do that probably five or six times a week. Really, I've, I've done about I've done it. I reckon I've done about sixty paintings over the last wow. month and a half. Yeah. Have your own galleries, see? Not they're not. <laughs> we're, you're going back to critics, you see. I'm not terribly keen to to um, to get the art critics on my back as well. But I mean, I find that fascinating because I mean, everyone knows you for all the broadcasting work and the writing work you do, and. I mean, that must take a hell of a long time, a hell of a lot of preparation for the sort of Sunday programme, the start of the week and all the rest of it. Um, and yet you find the time to do that. Yeah, well, I started off as a cartoonist. When I was at university, the first sort of journalistic thing I did was cartoons. And I stayed as a cartoonist for a long time and always drew pictures. And in a sense, the novel is cartoonish, deliberately cartoonish. Mm. And so I've always had a kind of visual imagination. It's, I don't know if it's more, imp <coughs> more important to me than the politics and the, and the non-fiction or not but it's up there at the same kind of level, it's really important to me and a week in which I didn't draw or paint would feel a very bleak week. Um, talk, let's talk about the Sunday programme, how long have you been doing that now? Long time? I started in 2005, so 10, so years. 10 years. 10 years, yeah. And you, you still enjoy it as much as I you did at the it. beginning? No, I, enjoy, I enjoy it a lot more because um, despite the appearance of it being incredibly easy, in fact it's quite hard work. People and always think broadcasting is easy, don't they? They think it's, and there's a lot of paddling underwater going yes. on, and a lot of attention. You have to com have complete emotional as well as physical attention for an hour without losing it for a second, and you're being watched the whole time, and things go wrong, and it's taken me quite a long time to become completely familiar with it. I mean, when Frost did the same sort of programme, and I took over from him, He'd been doing live broadcasting virtually all his adult mm. life since his early 20s. And it is something that you need a lot of practice at. It's, I've always said it's, um, it's a lot less difficult than learning to play the piano well, but it's a lot harder than learning to ride a bicycle for the first time. And it must have been quite difficult to follow him because he was such a legend. Um, I, I can remember the first time I did the paper review with him in 2003, a Polly Toynbee and Trigger from Only Fools and Horses. It was yeah. the day, I think it was mm -hmm. the day after the Iraq um, war march. And he he didn't arrive till about ten minutes before they went Scary, on there. Yes, and I, I was know. thinking, where is it? I and mean, I was panicking, yeah, yes, thinking, yes. what's going to happen? One, one of his <laughs> things was to induce panic in everybody else. But he was so. Com I mean, he was in a sense, I think, more at home in front of the camera than he was at home. Mm. Um, now I've never been like that. It's something I've learned, and it's taken me a long time. But I know. I get more pure enjoyment out of coming in on a Sunday morning and looking down the guest list and thinking how I'm going to deal with X or Y than I have for a very long time. I'm enjoying it more than ever. Because it was very different from the political editor job. Totally you, different job, yes. You, you won't remember this, but when I ran Politicos and you had only just started doing that job, you came in one day and we were, we were chatting about goodness knows what, and you said, well, how do you think it's going? Mm. And I remember saying to you, if the BBC ever tell you to stop waving your arms, tell them to sod off. Because to <laughs> yeah. me, 
I mean, because you were getting a lot of criticism mm. for being far too animated at, at the time, and I, I thought too interesting. What well, was that about? It yeah, well, well, exactly, and it actually, the the sort of movements emphasised what you wanted to say, and actually, I think, sort of drew the audience in. Well, I think one of the things about telly is that you can't fake who you are. If you try to be somebody else in front of the camera to the person you are, you are off camera. Somehow, the camera finds yeah. you out, so you have to be yourself. But the job of political editor is a very, very interesting one because what you really have to do, I thought, every day is find out the most important thing that's happened in politics that day and then explain to people why it matters to them mm. in language that is sufficiently vivid and strong, a good, a, a good tough metaphor or something that will stick in their minds once the bulletin is over. And that is a curiously difficult and interesting thing to do. However, it's also, in a sense, it's quite a surface thing. You, you don't deep, you don't dig deep down, you don't really get to cross-question people, which is why I like to, what I'm doing now. How's the transition been from Barney Jones to your new editor, Rob Burley? Because I mean, you've worked with Barney for so long, it must have been sort of like putting on an old shoe every week, whereas now Absolutely. you've got somebody new in who's presumably got new ideas. There's a terrible tradition in the BBC, like in many organisations, that when somebody goes, you pretend they didn't matter very much and, and nothing has changed. Barney was and is a great man and a legend, and I was very sorry to see him go. Um, the new guy, Rob Burley, is incredibly good. He works very, very hard with me. He, he puts me through my paces pre the interviewers, probably harder even than Barney did, and I get on with him very well. I mean, I think, I hope viewers have noticed almost no difference at all. Be a bit of a change in the paper reviewers, maybe a little bit of a change in the music. Yes, I haven't been invited back yet. Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll mention it to nice Mr. Burley, who I'm sure will be listening aghast at that, that omission. Um, but no, no, I mean, you have, to, you have to refresh, don't you? I mean, you can't keep There the is same no programme the in the world so good that it doesn't need to kick up the bottom mm. from time to time, and we're the same. How much do, does, did Barney or does Rob talk in your ear when you're interviewing a politician? Um, too much. All producers talk too much in your ear. Um, in the sense that what I try to do is, so I, if I'm doing an interview, I know where I'm starting. I've, I've talked it through with the producer beforehand. Mm. So we're going to we're going to we're going to kick off with Europe, and then we're going to move on to defence spending, and then we're going to do this. And in each bit of the interview, I know what I want to try and get out of this person. Though I probably won't get it out, but I, I know where I'm trying to mm. go. And I can hold in my head maybe half a dozen crucial figures: four hundred million pounds extra on defence budgets this year, whatever it might be. And so I know my structure, and I'm thinking very carefully of the structure while I'm asking the question, while at the same time watching my interviewee and thinking, oh, he's beginning to break sweat a bit, he doesn't like this, I'll, ca I'll carry on with this line of questioning for just a little bit longer. So you're, you're thinking you're very, very hard while you're interviewing, and somebody else coming into your ear and saying, you haven't asked him about Europe yet, mm. particularly if you have asked him about Europe or whatever, is very distracting. I can cope with it now. The best kind of voice in your ear that says, five minutes to go, two minutes to go remember about the Westminster question, you know, that kind of thing. That's great, but, but if it's more than that, it's very distracting. That, that's interesting, because I, I, as you know, I present the LBC Drive Time show, and my producer, I think, makes me a far better interviewer than I really am, because he comes up with absolutely stunning questions sometimes, which I haven't thought yes, of. Yes, there is that too. I should, I, I should confess, I'm saying that from time to time, I, if I, particularly if I'm struggling, I, I, you know, a good producer mm. will say, ask this or, or, or give you a question. But then they get really annoyed if you don't ask it. If you don't ask it. And sometimes <laughs> you're not asking it for a very good reason. You exactly. think, well, I'm just about to break through on the question of Jeremy Clarkson, or whoever it might be. Yeah. I'm very close to a breakthrough moment. And then somebody shouting, you get move on to Europe is the last thing you want to hear. What, what's the best interview you think you've ever done? And what, what defines a great interview? Oh, um, 
that sounds like blowing my own trumpet. Um, well, I'll ask you for the worst one in a minute too. The worst so. one, okay. Well, um, I, I, th I was very pleased with the interview I did with George Osborne during the election campaign because um, he just came out with his nine billion extra for the NHS and I felt it was perfectly clear they didn't know where the money was coming from and this was a back of the envelope, election triggered piece of flam. And I think I demonstrated in the course of the interview that that was true. He didn't have an answer and I just kept going courteously, not being rude, but making absolutely clear to the viewers that this was £9 billion, nine billion pounds from nowhere in particular. That, that's an interesting thing you've just said, that you, you do it courteously. Does it frustrate you that some of the criticism you get, I, I get the same kind of thing, is that they think it's always a soft interview because you don't shout at somebody. There is nothing that annoys me more than the idea in the interviewing trade, particularly political interviewing, that the, the programme is about the interviewer. Mm. And if you strike attitudes and sneer and shout and so on, that shows you're a good interview. To me, the show is about the interviewees, and therefore the whole thing is about getting them in the place where they're saying things that are genuinely interesting and perhaps unexpected. And to do that, it's, you, need, you need the whole kit of golf clubs. Occasionally yeah. you, you get cross, but most of the time you, can, you, know, you look them in the eye, smile and ask a direct question and don't let, don't let the glance go. That's the best way to do it. Um, and what's, give me an interview where you've come out of it thinking, that was just rubbish. Why didn't I do it that way? Um, I was very frustrated with a couple of the Gordon Brown interviews in the long... I have the same problem with Gordon Brown that I have with David Cameron, which is that they're both inclined to kind of proceed through the interviews if they're a Churchill tank, grinding on. And no matter the question, they have things they are going to say at some length. And if you just let them go on, then you get squashed. You're a small object underneath the tank's caterpillars. Um, and therefore you have to interrupt. And that can look very, very rude. And um, all prime ministers have been like that to an extent, haven't they? To an extent, yes. Um, David Cameron was very cross with me in the interview I did with him during the election campaign. He said, "You never interrupt anybody else like that." I'm very cross. Um, but actually, the answer is that if you let, if you didn't, if you don't interrupt David, then what happens is a series of five-minute party political broadcasts, one after another, and the viewers would be throwing things at the TV set. So you have to. But I haven't yet find find a way to elegantly jump in sufficiently often to make sure that doesn't happen while not irritating the interviewee, beyond belief. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Well, do you know what? I wouldn't be at all surprised if I was still doing the Andrew Marr show in 10 years. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> um, I think they'll probably throw me out of the tree well before that, but I, it's one of those jobs I can imagine doing for a long time. I've got a lot more books I want to do, I've got a lot more paintings I want to do, so life is full and busy and rich, but I hope broadcasting will always be at the heart of it. And um, what are you going to be reading during the summer? Well, I've got a really poncy answer for you, first of all, which is Proust, Marcel oh Proust, in English, I have to say, not in French. But it's one of those books that I've read about twice. That it's huge, it's almost unreadable. Once you get into it, it completely changes the inside of your head. And the first volume about, about life, a boy's life in rural France is completely captivating. So I'll be reading that. I'll be in France, I hope. And also, I will probably reread the best book I've read, the best novel I've read this year, which is by Ali Smith, called How to Be Both, which is half of it's about a young girl growing up in very difficult circumstances, family circumstances in Cambridge now, and the other half of it is a girl who becomes a Renaissance painter in Ferrara in the early 15th century, and the two stories kind of knock off each other, and half of the copies of the book start with the Renaissance story and half start with the modern story, so you don't know which you're going to get first. They're both part one, as it were. 
and I read it and I loved it for the, for the descriptions of painting and how, how a real painter's mind works. Ali Smith has the extraordinary ability to get inside the mind of a, of a Renaissance painter, it's sort of uncanny. But also, she makes you weep with the story, of the young, I won't give it away, the young girl's mm. story in Cambridge. And, it, and having read it once, I need to read it again, probably in the other order to get more out of it. It's a very, very rare thing to want to read a novel twice. It's very interesting. I've done about ten of these interviews now, and um, most people involved in the world of politics do not read political books on holiday. I suppose I don't know why I'm surprised by that, but I kind of am. Well, I think um, I mean there, there are some great biographies and stuff, but like you, I suppose quite a lot of my working week is spent with a big pile of political books on the yeah. table, leafing through them, reading them for, for work purposes. So when I'm away, I like something different. Uh, the current crop of politicians, whose autobiography would you quite like to read in the future, do you think? Gosh. Um, I think, um, if it's candid, which it might well be, I think Osborne would be very interesting. I think he's the, he's the cleverest member of the current cabinet, um, and in, in many ways the real driving force behind what's going on. I think he agonises a lot about the big um, economic decisions he's taken. Did he really sit down, look himself in the mirror halfway through the last parliament and change direction on deficit reduction. I think he did. I'd love to read about that. It sounds a bit dry, but I think mm. it would be a, a big emotional story. Um, and then, you know, he's got a ringside seat, Boris versus David Cameron. So why have I not said Boris? Because I kind of read it, I read it every week in the, in the, in the uh, Daily Telegraph and the Spectator and so forth. He is so open. I don't think we'll be getting great revelations in the, in the autobiography. No, and I, I suspect that will be some time in, in coming. Um, just a quick final word on the state of play. You, you had a fascinating election night following David Cameron, first of all, and then in the BBC studio. What, what was the most memorable, couple of most memorable moments from that night? To me, the most memorable moment of all was the exit poll coming out at ten, just after 10 o'clock, because I was as sure as I could be that David Cameron himself and the people around him felt that he was losing at that moment. He did not expect to win that election. And so when that came out, it was an extraordinary emotional um, geezer erupting from, from the village of Dean in, uh, in Oxfordshire. And I'll never forget that, because it was, it was, it was both unexpected. One of those moments, mm. can that really be true? And I kind of felt almost immediately instinctively that it was true. Um, but I think neither the Labour leadership nor the people around Cameron felt that that was what was going to happen. A genuine shock moment. And then I think in the middle of the night, it was Nuneaton. Yeah. was the constituency that I felt, right, now, that, now we know in Uneaton, we know the result. It's, yeah. it's an overall Tory I remember majority. actually saying that on the radio at the time. So I said right, it on I'm the television at the time. Well, I, I could see your, your face, but I couldn't hear what you were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it was yeah, an amazing night. Yeah. Uh, Ed Miliband, what's his future? Um, I really don't know. Not much of a one in politics, I think. Um, he's always been surprisingly rubbery and resilient, uh, much more than his image. Um, it's interesting that he's back in the Commons already and intervening from time to time, but I think it's a, it's a ghastly, ghastly position for him. I don't know what he does. The obvious thing to say is he goes over to Harvard, like they all do, mm. and lectures, like they all do. Maybe that's what will happen, but I suspect David would have to be back in this country first. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Ian, you thank can you very uh, much. buy Head of State on the Politico's website, politicos.co.uk.